Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. I'm Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is John Greenham, and if you're not familiar with John, John is a mastering engineer who has worked with a bunch of amazing artists such as Billie Eilish, who he won a bunch of Grammy Awards with. He's also worked with Sam Smith, Katy Perry, Ice Cube, and so many more. And in this conversation, we have a really good chat about the process of mastering, but more specifically, the ways that you can get your tracks prepared for mastering. And I think John brings up a lot of great points that you'll hear in this conversation about things like arrangement and making sure that you've been strategic about which elements take up the low end or the mid range or the top end and how all of this plays a much bigger role in how mastering will ultimately make your mixes sound better. So I think you're going to learn a ton from this conversation. Let's just jump right into it. John Greenham, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm Quite well, thank you. Awesome. For people who might not know your history in how you got into music and ultimately into mastering and where you are today, can you give us that story of how you came up and how you got here? Um, yeah, I mean, I basically started mastering in um, in San Francisco about 25 years ago. And, um, uh, you know, I play music. Well, I, I actually, I'm at the moment engaged in um, relearning the guitar after 30 years of not playing because that's going to be my next career. Um, <laughs> new age guitarist, you know. Amazing. Uh, but, um, yeah, and so um, I think, well, I met somebody who came up to San Francisco who worked at um, Bernie Grandman Mastering. And um, so we, and we had a room together and... Um, you know, that was it. I was I was very interested in how, um, you know, when I watched him work, how you could affect a stereo mix with just these tiny EQ moves, and it actually made a huge difference. So that was kind of the thing that captivated me in the beginning. When I saw that, I became very interested in in doing that and that hasn't changed for all those years actually i still feel the same way about it it's like um you know i typically finish off my work with uh digital eq uh you know usually dmg uh equilibrium and um you know i find myself doing these very very small you know point one of a db um, which is generally the way with digital EQs. It's like you, you know, do these tiny things. You can actually, and it just, it, you know, it's fascinating how it changes the entire presentation. Um, you know, at just like at, at uh, whatever, you know, the vocal, you can pick the vocal out of the mix a little bit um, or tuck it in a little bit. And I'm always amazed actually at how, advanced uh, my clients listening abilities are because they can hear it I, I send it out and I'm like you know they, they they'll they'll send in some comments and they'll say well you know um, 
it needs a little, the kick needs a little more thump. So I'll put like 0.1 of a dB at 200 cycles. I mean, not that that's, that's not thump, but that's the kind of high part of the kick drum. And I'll send it back and they'll go, that's perfect. And I'm, not, I'm always amazed that they can actually hear that because I always think that's so such a small thing. That but, it, but it does. It changes the entire character of the whole thing. Absolutely. Um, so that's what the fascinating thing about – that's really how I got into it because not only are you um, changing the uh, low frequency, but you're also, of course, changing the high frequency because – there's more low frequency, so therefore there's less. You can't, you don't hear the high end as much. So you're affecting many things with a, uh, whatever you're doing, you're affecting a lot of different, there's a lot of different, all of the elements of the music are being affected. Absolutely. So it ends up being sort of like a, you know, a vibe thing. But anyway, to get back to how, um, to how you know, so I, I started doing stuff. It's a slow process building up a mastering business. You know, it takes actually many years, unless you're fortunate enough to uh, get a job with you know at Bernie Grunman's place or something like that. In which case, you probably it's a bit quicker. But um, I, you know, so the first place I worked that had. Um, a really good equipment was um, this guy named Paul Stubblebein in San Francisco. And Paul was a big time gearhead and spent a lot of money. We had um, Pacific Microsonics Model 2 converters, which still sound really good, actually. Um, and at that time, they were like $18,000 each. And we had three of them, and we had a bunch of... Um, you know, Tim DiParavicini's EAR, Poltex, and it's like very high-end tube gear. And, um, yeah, a lot of really good stuff. And so that's kind of um, – and I think that's kind of what you have to – that's kind of what you have to – at some point in your career, you've got to – work on stuff because you got to work on good equipment that's like you know and there's actually very few things that you can pass the entire stereo signal through that aren't going to do something that you don't want you know if, if we're talking about analog stuff which is that's sort of my thing i grudgingly master things in the box sometimes if i don't have any choice but so um you know, once you've seen how that is in the wire and the converters and the, the the tube stuff or, you know, the solid state stuff, the, uh, but top-notch gear, and once you've figured out how that sounds, um, then that's, that's a good place to start. So Paul just kind of let me loose in his laboratory with these sort of mountains of exotic gear that I'd never seen before. And I sort of slowly figured out how to use it. Um, and, you know, now I have my own stuff, which I'm also slowly figuring out how to use. Uh, anyway, so then about uh, 
So I worked in the Bay Area for quite a long time, and about 10 years ago I moved down to L.A., worked at Infrasonic in, in Echo Park for about four years, and, um, and then I started working at home um, uh, just because, I, you know, well, there's no studio politics involved in working at home. It's kind of easier. And uh, around about that time also, I, I met um, Billy and Phineas, and, um, you know, they were just beginning their careers. And so, um, yeah, we just kind of went on from there. Um, and, um, yeah, that's about it. That's very Condensed cool. version of the thing. Yeah. That's awesome. You had mentioned a couple of really interesting points that I wanted to dive deeper with. I thought it was really interesting that you were able to hear these small boosts by, you know, 0.1 dB and that, even that your clients can hear the stuff as well. And I think that's something a lot of people don't really hear very easily. I think it takes a lot of time to be able to train your ears to be able to identify that kind of stuff. And I see it time and time again where people are making massive boosts, you know, like 5, 10, 15 dB sometimes just to, to really hear the extremes of it, right? So I'm curious to know how you trained your ears to be able to hear the smaller increments and, you know, ultimately, what do you recommend for people who are trying to learn how to, to do this themselves? The skill um, <clears throat> in mastering, anyway, <clears throat> and in mixing and in recording, for that matter, is is listening is the skill. It's not really understanding the equipment or being an electrical engineer or any of that stuff. It's yeah, learning how to listen, and and I mean, learning how to listen in mastering is complicated because you're listening to everything in the entire mix. There's a lot of stuff going on. You know, a lot of things going on. <clears throat> um, so, well, first of all, there's a couple of things. One is that it seems to me that with the digital EQs, that's a different than the analog EQs. But like, for example, I have a pair of Pultex, which I can boost the signal at 8K about 3 or 4 dB, which I do sometimes. Somehow or another, um, I mean, it, it does make a big difference, but uh, with the analog stuff, you can kind of hammer it a bit more, and it doesn't, um, it, it, it sort of, well, it's probably because it's tube stuff. It's distortion, really. Tube, tube stuff is distortion. So it's kind of like it has this, it's more, it has this effect. Um, so you can, in, with analog stuff, sometimes you're doing like pretty big moves. It seems like if you have a digital EQ, and I don't know why this is, you know, you do these tiny moves and they are, are actually significant. So to your point, though, about listening is that, I, you know, I think that um, people might not know what it is, uh, you know, but they can hear a difference and they can hear that it's correct. They can hear that it's working properly. Um, now, this is assuming, of course, that they have an environment that's reasonably, um, you know, accurate. Or actually, maybe it doesn't even really matter. If you get the thing right in mastering, then the sonic signature of whatever that is will show up. It doesn't matter whether, I mean, I was, I had this experience recently where I heard something that I had worked on. This guy on Mission Street in San Francisco was listening to his boombox turned up all the way so it was completely distorting and 
it's, I could still tell the, the work that I'd done on it. I could hear it. <laughs> you know, and, and actually, interestingly, while we're talking about that, that song on um, uh, Billy's album, Zanny, that's actually, I got into a lot of trouble for that because all the mastering boards, you know, the discussion groups and stuff, is, everybody always blames the mastering engineer. You know, there's distortion on that track. You know, why did the mastering engineer do that? In reality, what happened is, is that um, uh, Billy was actually listening to that thing on a boombox and they turned it all the way up and that was the sound. She goes, I like that. I want, I want it. That's how I want it to sound. <laughs> so that's how that happened. And, and it's like, I got a lot of, you know, cause mastering engineers generally are pretty snotty bunch really. And they were like, how could the mastering engineer do this? You know, what, what it's like it, but that's how it came to me. I didn't do that at all. So you know, that wasn't, that wasn't my, that wasn't my, I would never do that to somebody's, work you know without <laughs> i guess at the end of the day you're you're always keeping the artist's vision in mind right so as long as they're happy then you know yeah that's the most important exactly part. that's very cool um yeah so so that's also interesting you'd also mentioned the idea of analog versus digital equipment for mastering and i'm curious to get your thoughts on that because because i you know when you look at the big pictures of you know you look at pictures of big mastering studios it's it's always analog gear but i feel like more and more there are people that are starting to do it in the box and you even said yourself that you're starting to do a little bit more in the box begrudgedly sometimes but uh but i'm curious to get your thoughts on like do you really need that analog gear does that make a significant impact and if so how hmm well, it's much easier to get stuff done with analog gear because it sounds good right away, usually. The only exceptions are <clears throat> if you're working on um, something like EDM music, which I I don't tend to work on that, that much. Oh, or if the mix has been really hammered and that's how you get it and it's like super, super loud already, then that's a problem, you know, and running it through analog gear is, is probably going to, because everything's pushed right up to the limit as far as it can go. And if you run that through a bunch of tube stuff, it's probably going to start falling apart. Uh, but generally speaking, um, you know, the, the mixers that are, most of the mixers that I work with are really good and they know what they're doing and they'll send me, what the client's been listening to, which is the loud thing, which they their mix with a limiter on it, basically. And then they'll send me um, something to work on with less limiting or without limiting at all. And sometimes they'll send pictures of their settings with a Pro L2. And here's what I, here's, you know, here's, here's what I, and it's got like, you know, 15 dB of gain on it and stuff like that. um so so basically yeah it it's um the sort of subtlety of the analog thing is is um is uh you know that's where you get kind of the i mean to me it's just um you know things sound kind of flat in the uh if they're done all completely digital and I, I, I'm sure there are some people, and I'm sure that I, if I spend a lot of time fiddling about with stuff, I'd probably get it to sound 
the way I wanted it with plugins, I imagine. Um, but when I work with plugins, I find it takes me much, much longer. You know, I get really into the minutiae of layers of things and should I put them in this order? And then, you know, it's like, you know, and then I start cutting the song up into pieces because this section, I find I get very into the kind of details of it and it takes a long time. Um, whereas usually if I, uh, you know, dial up so, uh, good settings and, you know, my, my choices are basically whether to use tube gear or solid state, you know, as far as, um, as far as that goes. Uh, and so, you know, I can relatively quickly dial up something that sounds really good and then print it. And then I'm kind of like about 98% of the way there. Um, so it's quicker. Gotcha. Uh, you can get something really nice sounding quickly. And I'm not saying that you couldn't, I, I mean, I, I think there are plugins that are pretty good emulations of the stuff. But generally, um, to me, when I get a, a mix, when I, I run it through my chain, I listen to the difference between what I, what I've got and what the mix engineer did. Uh, it sounds like it's got some depth. It sounds like it's got some kind of 3D thing in it from the analog stuff. Uh, generally, that's what it sounds like. Now, there are some people um, that I work with that, you know, like if you're working with you know, Spike Stent or Josh Goodwin. I mean, they make tons of money and they've got every piece of gear that you could possibly imagine. You know, they've got like sort of, they have a mastering chain that they print their mixes through, which is probably, you know, more than most mastering engineers have. Um, so that's kind of a, a different set of problems dealing with that. Um but yeah, I mean, generally, uh, you know, uh, at a certain level, if you're working at a fairly high level, the stuff you get is already really good. I mean, actually, they, you, they could put it out like that and it would be fine. Don't tell anybody that, but <laughs> sometimes I'm like, why are you sending this to me? It sounds perfectly fine the way it is. So... Um, that's a thing. That's actually a thing we could talk about. Yeah, I'm actually very curious to know about that because I always feel like it, a bunch of other mastering engineers who have had on the podcast have kind of, the consensus has always been that mastering's job is to make it sound better. And when you get a track that is already sounding incredible to you, how do you normally go about approaching those kind of projects and deciding what those next steps are to make it sound better? Mm. Um, well, so, you know, you're trying to find something that maybe they hadn't thought of because they were thinking in, in uh, you know, basically when you go through the mix process, you're usually, I mean, because I've done quite a bit of mixing myself in the past and you usually become obsessed about something, whether it's the, well, typically it's the snare drum, the vocal, the kick drum, you know, the main elements of the thing. And you're always like, uh, the way this vocal was recorded, you had to do a lot of work to get it. So you're, you're typically, you're kind of focused on, on sort of some element or another, and you're not 
so much looking at the big picture. So maybe you missed something. Um, now, some of the people that I work with are so good that, I mean, they've mixed all of the hit records that for the last 20 years that we've listened to, you know? Um, so yeah, what do you do with it? Not very much is the answer to that question. Uh, in fact, probably as little as possible. In fact, you probably could, well, actually I did the other day, there was some, it, it, it actually wasn't because I, I thought the mix was particularly good, but I had to master a selection of remixes for this artist that I work with. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not the remix guy, really. But um, anyway, my experience with that is that there's always one guy that sends you this thing that's incredibly loud. So then you have to kind of, all of the rest of, you know, people like take the limiter off and they send it to you. But there's one guy that does not want anybody doing anything with his thing or her thing. And there's always one. So in this case, this person, and I listened to it and I ran it through some stuff and I listened to it and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to knock it down to 16 bits and send them that and put that in with the other songs. And that's what I did. I didn't do anything to, except dither, you know. And dithering, by the way, it, a lot of people on the mastering boards laugh about dithering, but actually it's quite significant. So it's not like I did nothing. So maybe maybe that's what you are in, in, in the case of people that are really good. Maybe you're a dithering specialist. Yeah. Well, I guess there's, I mean, there is, there's That's more kind of to, a joke, make... by the way, but yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Um, yeah, but, but there's, I mean, there is more to mastering than just the audio portion of it, obviously. Right. And there is like the preparation side and adding the codes and, you know, CD text and all that kind of stuff and sequencing and all that. So, so, so I think if you do have a great sounding record, sometimes it's just like leaving the audio untouched might actually be the best thing. And just your job is to then sequence it and put it, get it ready for a release. Right. Yeah, that, that, that could be, although um, I sort of have mixed feelings about not doing anything to it at all, because after all, they sent it to me. Fair. Um, so I kind of, be, you know, sort of ideologically, I have a bit of a hard time with not doing anything to it at all. Yeah. I, I didn't mean completely leaving it blank, but like completely leaving it untouched. But I, but I guess that's also part of the question, right? Is that like, there is always that kind of... Uh, internal struggle i think for a mastering engineer where you feel like you need to add your own little sonic footprint to some degree on it right so if it sounds so good then how do you add those well you um yeah i don't know that's a very good question i mean that's a question that you ask yourself every day like what am i going to do with this sometimes it's uh sometimes it's obvious sometimes it isn't i mean i think that there's been sort of a um uh, you know, if you go back sort of 15, 20 years and stuff, and in fact, some of the, some, some, you know, this trend of mix engineers doing everything is kind of, um, you know, I, I actually had a very interesting, um, I went to this event that, um, uh, Tony Maserati was talking about this and, um, he had an interesting comment and he, his comment was that his job was to make a mix that, you know, in 20 years time, let's say the fashion is not to 
totally hammer it and make it loud and stuff. Then you could take his mix and do like the mastering people do, make it sound current. Mm -hmm. He produces a mix that will, that can go into the archives and be taken out in 20 years and remastered according to what people are listening to and what's going on. So therefore his mixes that he sends are, you know, they've got like wavy lines in them. They've got like, they're not, they're not, you know, Sausage. a box. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and I think that in many ways, the trend of, you know, mix engineers and I, I kind of, and I better not get into trouble here, but I, I think in many ways, in, in, in some ways, they, they've gotten sort of ideas above their station in life to where they're kind of, you know, these godlike people. That, and they don't want, I don't want anybody doing anything to my mix, you know, so they just seal it. They just make it so that it's no, they don't want anybody doing anything to it, which, to be fair, probably stems from sending it to mastering engineers that have fucked up their stuff in the past. No, so they have, you know, when digital limiters came along and they could make their stuff as loud as anybody, then that's what they did. Um, which is unfortunate, actually, because somebody that's jo whose job is finishing stuff is liable to do a better job of making a more interesting job of making it loud, actually. Um, but. You know, then you've got the whole thing. I mean, basically, this whole uh, uh, chain of loud begins with the uh, producer ref. I mean, this is like me and my friends talk, you know, producers, mixers, the people that I know in LA, we all talk about this. It's like the mixers, like um, the ref that they get from the artist or the producer is already incredibly loud. And so they have to fight to kind of get it up to that level. And they can't send them anything that's less loud than that. Mm -hmm. So then they, you send it to mastering and then, <laughs> you know, we're in the same position. It's like you can't, you, because, you know, it, it it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, people just naturally prefer stuff that's louder. You know, that's, that's all we, we like the thing. If it's louder, you can hear it better. That's why. Mm -hmm. um, asking an artist who's got, who's mainly thinking about their Instagram account, their TikTok, their career, their whatever they're doing, asking them to be able to make decisions about, um, you know, whether it sounds better if you turn it down and level match it and all that is just too much, honestly, for most people. They, they don't, you know, they've got too many other things to do. It's your job to give them something. So then, which brings us up to the, which brings us to the other thing. I don't know if you want to talk about Spotify or any of that stuff, because that's a whole. Yeah, we can absolutely, we can absolutely get into that. It's interesting that you, you know, th th this idea of the mixing engineer who is kind of doing the, the fake mastering job on their records. And, and I think part of that stems from the idea that, I mean, th I think there's two different types of mastering engineers out there. There's mastering engineers who do make it their job to like, change the sound up drastically and that probably is not the best mastering engineer to go with generally and then there's the people who go very subtle about things and and i think as a mixing engineer you have to know who is ultimately going to be working on your project after you and that's going to determine how you work and how you make the final product sound before you pass it off and i think there's a lot of this idea of like you know mix like nobody's going to master it so you get it as great as you can make it sound in the mixing stage so that you 
when you pass it off to mastering, there's it's not going to change drastically. I think a lot of people think that way, but but there are there are a lot of problems with that approach sometimes too, right? Well, you know that's fine. Um, uh, it's just that um, I mean, if you don't send if you send something for somebody to work on um, that you've already finished, I mean, you know, but some people just send the loud thing. I mean, they don't, they don't send anything else. Um, you know, quite a few people I work with do that actually. They don't even bother with, they just like finish it. Mm -hmm. That's how they want it to sound. Um, now, I mean, you can still work with it as long as they haven't. I, I mean, the problem comes when the, the, the thing is really too loud, mm -hmm. that it's really beyond and that stuff's starting to break up but it's right on the edge and that that is a big problem. You can't do anything with that really. But as long as it's like, as long as it's still in good shape and it's clean and there isn't a bunch of fuzzy stuff around the kick drum when it hits and, and all that kind of stuff, as long as it's in good shape, you can run it through the analog gear and get a further stage of development out of it. That sounds better. You just turn it down in the workstation about, six or seven db and run it through your chain that's all mm -hmm. and that's fine actually that works very well um the problem comes when uh they well criticizing other people's work is not i mean you know like i say they're they're under the gun to make it super loud probably so they've probably gone beyond you know there's some producer telling them like this guy that i'm working with at the moment um who shall remain nameless but it's like he's like yeah i know it's too loud the producer is like just wants it to be louder than anything else out there and that's it so there's there's problems with that for everybody it creates problems for everybody it creates problems when you upload it to spotify it creates problems all over the place but that's what some people want you know they want it to be they want it to be loud so and in LA, we're loud down here. I mean, that's kind of the way it is, you know. There's not much you can do about it. It seemed like it did that a couple of years ago when all this kind of Spotify normalization things, you know, everybody started making videos about it and stuff like that. It seemed like the levels dipped down a little bit and then they just went right back up again. And now we're kind of, now we're, we're sort of like, you know, we're up around sort of minus six, minus eight, luff or whatever, or RMS or however, you know, you want to look at it. We're, yeah, everyone's got their own like, meter, right? Yeah, we're kind of like, um, we're kind of back in the kind of, which, which is a sound, you know, and some music is meant to sound like that, actually. It mm -hmm. sounds good like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. This is a problem with the, um, the uh, wave of, internet mastering engineers is that they're like i send all my stuff out at minus 12 lufs and it, it probably sounds like horrible like that a lot of the time it's not supposed to be like that that's yeah. not the kind of music it is you know this it's just going to sound weak for sure and uh you know yeah so then i think i think the age-old question and every mastering engineer has a different answer for this i'm sure but you know what 
what are your recommendations for people when they're mixing as far as preparing their, their mixes for mastering? Like, do you have a set level that you generally tell people to aim for? I know you said you can pretty much work with anything, but. No, just make it sound good. That's all. That's Love what it. I tell people. It's nice and simple. <laughs> make it sound as good as you possibly can. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because, I, you know, there's always so many people saying like, oh, I have it at minus six or I've heard minus 12 or whatever, you know, like, but. No, well, those people, sometimes it's like, I, I saw this comment um, by a colleague of mine in LA, actually. And as there was this discussion on, um, there's this uh, thing that I go on on Facebook, which is a sort of horrible fascination with mastering engineers worldwide. And they get into these whole things about, um, oh, you know, these idiots, it's too loud and all that stuff. You know, and then this guy, you know, somebody will actually, there was this one discussion with this guy wrote, and he said, these are the, this is the reading that I got from this song. And, and this friend of mine commented and he said, do you guys actually listen to the music or you just look at the numbers? <laughs> and uh, that I think is like, is that's the key. I mean, you have to listen to me. You have to like ignore the numbers really. Yeah. Honestly, you do. It's like you just make it, you know, nobody. The other thing about the loud thing, and I'm sorry to go on about this, is Bernie Grunman years ago, I saw him at the AS show, and people, you know, somebody got up and asked him about the loudness wars and all that. And he goes, he goes, well, he said, you know, whenever, whatever the um, sort of dominant release format of the day has been, People have always wanted to get as much on it as possible. When it was vinyl, well, which it still is vinyl, actually, people want their vinyl records to be louder than everybody else. You know, that's what, the, you know, the exchange in London when it was around, they had some kind of mojo that their shit would be louder than anybody else's. And people sent stuff there from all over the world just for that reason. They could get louder cut. They could get a louder cut. So it's not, there's nothing sort of unusual about that. You just have to make it loud and sound good, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever it has that you make it loud, make it as loud as you can, you know, just push it up there until bad things start happening and then back it off. And then there you are. And it's different for every thing you work on that, that precise point at which it, it has excitement, it has energy, it has impact, and then it's kind of tiring to listen to. You know, so you that's what the whole thing is about. It's about finding that spot where it speaks. So with that said, like with all the major streaming services constantly changing their algorithms and, you know, how hard they compress things or turn things up or turn things down, how has that affected your process? Like, do you find that you're making multiple versions of masters in order to optimize the sound for different streaming services or different mediums? Or is there generally like a standard level that seems to work best, in your opinion, across all of them and you just make one master? I actually don't really pay any attention to it at all. To be honest with you, um, I don't know what they do to the stuff. It seems to keep changing. They don't tell anybody. They didn't ask us what you know what we thought about it. They just kind of came up with these arbitrary numbers, apparently. That um, so yeah, I just I, I just make it sound good, and then people put it up there, and I don't get any complaints from everybody anybody. Um, and that's, that's it. I mean, your clients will tell you if it's not working properly, 
you know, when they upload it and they listen to it and it doesn't sound like all the other stuff, they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, uh, I did actually have one experience with this where, um, now, it depends on the kind of music. Is, is This is the longer answer to your question because if you have like something like Travis Scott, you know, you have like a big low end thing and a snare drum and a little keyboard and a vocal, that fares much better because the um, because the uh, algorithm is looking at the luffs thing is looking at the level of the vocal really. That's what it's, or at least that's what I've noticed about it is that it doesn't react to the low end really. It reacts to the kind of frequency where the vocal is, which makes sense because if you're going to average out a bunch of songs, you probably want to be like the mid-range where the vocal is. You probably want to make that be about the same. You know, that's actually what you do. That's one method for mastering an album is you match the vocal levels and let the music be like what it is. And because when people listen, they're mostly listening to the vocal. So if the vocal, that's what they, if the vocal suddenly really loud on one track, they're going to really notice that. Maybe the music fluctuation in volume, not so much. So that's what Spotify is aimed at. So certain types of music have an unfair advantage in that system. Um, and the type of music that fares worse, this is just my opinion, but yeah. I don't know. For sure. The type of music that fares the worst is really dense material with a lot of guitars and something that starts, everybody plays one, two, three, four, in, everybody plays all the way through to the end, there's no quiet bits, because that's the other thing. It's like the whole thing is ridiculous, actually, because it's like this guy actually did a video of that song, Zanny, the Billy song. Mm-hmm. He made a 15-minute video, and he ran it through all the meters, and he looked at it, and he was like, you know, what this, it, he goes, the, the, the RMS level is up to zero during the, that, and I'm like, you know, he's and he's talking to, basically criticizing my work. Yeah, of course. So it's like, um, but he said, Spotify only turned it down by 2 dB. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because there's hardly anything happening for long periods of that song. There's just a little bass thing and a tiny vocal. So the average of it is 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 not that great. But the loud parts are like super loud. So what is the point of that? You know? Yeah. So then it comes down to if you want your stuff to be loud on Spotify, it's an arrangement thing. You have to put quiet bits in your song. If you put quiet bits in your song, if you have a quiet intro that goes on for 30 seconds, they won't turn it down that much because it averages. The thing is stupid. It can't figure out that, you know, the loud part's going to be like louder than the next song, which goes all the way through at a high level the loud parts of the the song with the quiet bits in it are going to be louder than the whole thing and the other. So it's like, you know, I just, at this point I'm like, okay, I don't care actually. And nor do the millions of Billie Eilish fans either. No, exactly. No, exactly. No, I don't care what they do. I'm not really that interested in, in what they do with it. Um, uh, you know, if you make the song sound good, who cares if they turn it down 5 dB? If it sounds good, I mean, that's their job, is to make the stuff work in a playlist together. So presumably that's what they're working on. And generally they do a pretty good job of it. If you listen to your Spotify feed, 
with normalization on, yeah, you can put a whole bunch of different songs together and it, it works. So they, they've kind of done the thing correctly. Everybody, all, all, all the, the mastering engineers are freaking out about it because, um, you know, they're turning the stuff down or whatever they're doing. But it doesn't matter. If the transients have enough impact, which is your job, then it, it'll sound good anyway. If they turn it down, let them turn it down. I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as long as it's not quieter than everybody else's stuff. And I did, actually, I spent a long time at one point making these files. I recorded stuff from Spotify um, just into the kind of regular analog input in my computer. <clears throat> I've recorded stuff normalized, non-normalized, and then I downloaded files from, uh, you know, Amazon or whatever. So they were like, you know, the full range files. And I made a little show and tell thing for which I sent to a bunch of producer friends of mine and no one even listened to it. So it's like, I was like, okay, people are not really interested in this. They don't really care. Well, one person did. And he came to like completely different conclusions than I did from listening to the files that I sent. <laughs> so I was like, mm, you know, I, this is like, this is actually, you know, because I mean, I got, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, great. We don't have to make things as loud. You know, we can, but no, not really. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's such a thing. You know, it's, if you look at all the stuff, if you look at all the major, well, basically, You've got, like, uh, the major labels, everybody complains about the music and all that stuff. But, I mean, they basically make all the money that allows there to be a music industry. And if you listen to all that stuff, it's all about the same. It's all, like, sort of, you know, it's all loud. It's all, like, Mm -hmm. way beyond minus 12. Let's put it that way. Minus 12 is going to sound really weak for most, especially pop music. And when you say minus 12, are you referring to LUFS or are you referring to yeah. like RMS? Okay. That's supposedly what, well, that's one of the settings. Is, well, then Spotify also has two different settings. There's a loud setting and a, so, a loud <laughs> setting. I don't know what the, you know, so how, what do you, it's like, you know, it's, it's, so, so, so anyway, um, yeah, if you don't want to deal with it, then just turn off the normalization thing on your Spotify and then you'll hear it as it was, as it was mastered, you know, yeah. you're here at the level or mastered, or as I say, the loudness is not really up to the mastering engineer. It's like a lot of times it's like the other people in the process have already dictated how loud it's going to be. Absolutely. Well, it's, it sounds like your philosophy is very much just like focus on the music. Don't focus on the numbers or anywhere else. Like just like make the music sound as good as it can and it'll, it'll do its own work. Yeah, well, so there is there there was I did have this client who was um, he was very unhappy about the way that one of his songs sounded that had been mastered by somebody else, and he he was like, yeah, it sounds really quiet on Spotify. So he sent me all the files and I looked at it, and the guy that mastered it actually did what I would have done pretty much. I mean, it was you know that kind of level, and. So I sort of talked to him about it. I said, well, let's do an experiment. I'll, I'll, I'll master it at, you know, minus 12, whatever. And we'll get it, we'll get it to the level where they won't turn it down. 
and we'll see what happens. And we uploaded it, and actually it sounded really good. But it was kind of like it was the indie thing. The problem with it, with it was the recording wasn't very good. The drum sounds weren't all that good. Um, and so when you compressed it really hard, the, drum, the snare drum kind of went away and it all sounded pretty weak. So if you left it, if you made it quieter, uh, the transients were there and it sounded better. But that's just, that's a bad mix. That's a, a bad mix or a bad recording. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you, you can take care of that stuff in the mix because that's the relative level of everything. And then you, you obviously when you're mixing, you listen to it limited and then you fix everything according to that. You put, when the load comes on it, these things are still going to hold up. That's just people doing their job. So do you recommend that people mix with the limiter and kind of have that on throughout the mix and just take yeah, it off yeah, the end? I think, yeah, well, no, you've got to at least know what it's going to sound like. Maybe not mix with the limiter. Some people mix into a limiter, um, and that's okay if that's the way you work. Uh, but um, you have to at least see how it's going to be when it's up at the normal commercial level and make sure that everything is there. I mean, that seems sensible. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. One, one other question that I wanted to ask you, and it kind of ties into some of the Billy Eilish stuff and some of this loudness conversation that we're, that we're having. But one thing that I feel you do really, really well when I listen to your masters is the low end. Like, I feel like you have this way of making the low end sound so big and full, but it, it doesn't sound muddy. It's like very clear, very defined. And I'm curious if you have any tips for managing low end and getting it to sound controlled. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing, actually. I, I think that, um, one thing that I, one thing that I, um, uh, one thing that I like about the old tube technology is that it does, um, kind of extend the low end downwards and that's the pull tech thing. It's like, now you have to be careful what you use those things on because they do all kinds of stuff to people's mixes and sometimes it's not what you want. Sometimes it sounds like a bit of a mess. But there's two things about the pull techs. One is the vocal always sounds really good and the other is the low end always sounds really good. And it's like it, it the pull tech thing is basically um, – you know, like you could uh, sort of emulate that by if you put like um <clears throat> if you put a shelf on an EQ at about like three hundred cycles, and then maybe a narrow cut around two hundred or something like that. That's one way you can get that sound. It's kind of like extended low end, but not muddy. So you can kind of you know, there's there's things you can do with with um. Anyway, you can experiment. If you if you use the DMG, the equilibrium equilibrium plugin that I talked about, it has all the pull tech curves in it, and you can see what they do. Um, and generally, they do like the very big slow curves, and they'll they'll you know you'll boost the low end, and then it'll it'll you know you use the boost and the attenuate at the same time, and it'll put a a notch in it like around. Well, two, three, four hundred, something like that. And it's kind of a big, smooth sound. So that's one thing you can do. Um, the tube gear does make the low end sound nice. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know, really. I, I, I don't <laughs> really have any answer for you. And I, I think you just have to get it so that, um, it, you know, so that there actually isn't very much low end, but you can hear it properly. It's like a psychoacoustic kind of thing? Yeah, it's like you don't want, like if you listen to it, for example, people always say about you know, rap music, it's like, oh, there's a lot of low end on it. So, but, but if you listen to like, uh, 2001, The Chronic, which is one of the best sounding records ever made, actually. If you, I was at a party the other day and somebody they were playing a bunch of stuff and then they started playing that record and it kicked everything's ass. It was like, you know, still to this day, it was 20 years ago or whatever. There's not very much low end on that record. And that's what you think about, but actually not. It's not. There's not a lot of low end there. And it's just the texture of it is the thing. It's a texture. It's not like you you don't you don't want it using up a lot of energy because that's the bottom line with the whole thing that we're talking about. Is there's only so much energy available. So you have to figure out where do you want the energy? Well, you want the energy in the mid-range, basically, because that's where the vocals are and the drums are, you know, more most for the most part anyway. So most of the sounds that define the music are are in that area. So that's where you want. You don't want a lot of low end, honestly, um, unless it's kind of that's your thing and that's what you're trying to do. You know, some people. <laughs> some people just well actually <laughs> you know billy is kind of like that she just wants a lot of bass on stuff that's that's it you know that's and, and that that's what one of those things uh that you know then that record came out people were like wow that's incredible how did you do that but actually it's like that's the way they wanted it you know it's like I, we didn't like like I did a podcast with somebody and this guy said, when I listened to that record, I thought, oh, they found a new process of some kind. And I'm like, no. They were the new process, actually. They just decided that that's how they wanted it to be. Well, actually, in reality, that's um, – and that's the other thing. That's a very good – that's a very interesting thing to look at because – Basically, the whole thing with her music is that she has the most beautiful voice. And if you listen to um, the way the stuff is set up, Phineas is smart enough to not put anything in the way of the vocal, so there's no other bright stuff. The vocal has the entire top end of everything, or usually anyway. Um, and so you can put a lot of bass on it because you've got um, you know, you've got the vocal, you've got that beautiful vocal floating above it, all the other stuff. There's no like little sizzly hi hats, or it's all pretty dark. The production elements are all pretty dark, and and so that's the way that's set up. That's why it works. It's very interesting. Um, but you can't have that much bass with you know other people's music. It's just that it works because of her vocal basically yeah. that's what that is if you don't have a vocal like that you couldn't get away with it yeah absolutely and and also the vocal arrangements that they're very good they're very talented vocal arrangements they're, for sure they're, they're um they're the harmonies that they write are like 
sort of next level. They're much better than most people can are capable of. Hundred percent. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And and listening to those songs, you're absolutely right that just the arrangement of everything and just the consideration for where the vocal sits and what other elements are in the mix. Like they've they figured out this way of pocketing everything, giving it its own space. And that, I think that does make sense how how you're able to get that low end to sound so big because yeah, the vocal nothing else is fighting the vocal. So you kind of have this like clearly defined top end and low end and they just work really well together and they're all fight they're not all fighting against each other for volume. Do you find that you ever use like high pass filters at all in a mastering situation or do you typically leave that untouched? I do sometimes, yeah. If it helps. I mean, you can try it and see if it works. Sometimes mm-hmm. it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um low pass filter same way actually. I think a low pass filter is actually a really good thing. And I, I've sort of gotten out of the habit of doing them, but I used to do that a lot. In fact, I went through a phase where I, I would actually see how much high end I could take off before people noticed. And people didn't really notice. I would <laughs> start cutting it at around 10K, you know, a filter. I mean, nobody, it's like this air thing is a lot of nonsense, really, honestly. It's like, um, you know, 10K is kind of useful, 8K, 10K, I don't know, about 15 or 18. I mean, I can't hear that anyway, so. I mean, I can tell that it's there, but I, I don't, if you, you know, it's like. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I it's, yeah, I don't think you need, you, you yeah, you definitely, I, I would, I would low, I would, I would say you don't need the, the top end because when you pass it through, when you pass the top end through the analog stuff, and you you'll understand this if you cut lacquers, the amplifier doesn't it doesn't sound like much to you um, if there's a whole bunch of stuff at fifteen k, but it does it it the amplifier the cutting amps in the lathe are, are totally freaked out by that. There's a lot of energy there. They don't like it. Mm-hmm. So your analog equipment doesn't think that it's nothing. So if you're using analog stuff, it probably is a good idea to to like cut the top end back a bit, like up if you're working at 44.1, you know, up at like 2018, 15, you know, because then you'll have more energy for the rest of it. Makes sense. Um, I think it does make a difference, actually. If you, if you, um, originally, as I say, it's a vinyl thing, but also, you know, if you're working with analog gear, I think it's it's not a bad thing to do. Well, it kind of makes sense too that a lot of the analog gear was kind of a lot, of, at least a lot of like the big mastering analog gear was designed back in the day when vinyl cutting was such a popular thing. So it was kind of built for those applications. So kind of to to think about that technology and what was going on at the time, you have to think that that'll kind of help you d- um, determine how to use your your tech. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting too that you were talking about the air and and kind of how how you kind of. Uh, how it seems like so many people are kind of focusing on the air and, and it, I think it's also to do largely with what you said earlier about the arrangement thing where people are just trying to cram so much into a limited frequency band and get those, get the low end crank so high, get the mid range so high and then get the vocal like top end so high. And it's like, there's nowhere else to go. So people are just go, reaching as far as they can go with that top end to see if they can make it stand out any further, but it's really not doing them any service at well, all. Well, You know, it comes down to like, what is it that, 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 is has the top end, you know, in the case of like, um, 
you know, Mariah Carey, for example, it's that Sony microphone. It's the microphone. It's the, you know, the microphone choice for the vocal is will give you that sound. You can't get that sound from an EQ, really. You know, it's like you have to record stuff properly. That's 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 what I. This is um, probably should wrap it up actually. But this is yeah, what this is what I. I basically the course of my career was that I I kind of started mastering actually. Well, after you know playing, then I would master stuff, and I'd think you know this would be much better if I could mix it. So then I started mixing. Then I realized you know, this would be a lot better if I could record it. So then I started recording. And then I realized, you know, what I have to do actually is work with really talented people who have great sounding instruments and are really good musicians and singers. Because that's, you know, if you have people who know what they're doing and you record it the right way, the mixing and the mastering is like nothing. It's really easy. So that was my journey into it was kind of backwards. And what I found out that it, it, it is actually the key thing is having good sounds in the first place. And there's no amount of fiddling about with it and EQing it and putting distortion on it and, uh, you know, um, saturation and all of these things. There's no, there's, there's just, if you don't get it right to begin with, it's never going to be right. So if you want it to, if you want the drums to be bright, but not, um, you know, then use like some, you know, use a microphone on, on, on the cymbals that, or, you know, use a, use a, um, uh, you know, use a ribbon mic on the drums because that, you know, there's virtually nothing above 8K on those things anyway. They don't sound actually really good. The symbols will sit in the mix nicely. Uh, you know, it won't cause you any problems. Otherwise, you're going to spend your entire time mixing, trying to EQ it so that it works. And it's not, it's really not never going to. Um, so, and especially, you know, with drums, with recording drums, uh, you very few people actually know how to. There's very few people that you can put in a studio behind a drum kit and they'll give you something that's actually usable honestly most people don't know how to record drums like you know they'll wail on the cymbals really hard and they'll do this and that and the other thing and it, it, it's just you can't it's it's a different thing playing live drums particularly and well any instrument for that matter but um so that's 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 it really you know the eq things are like that's for just kind of tidying it up a bit. Mm -hmm. But the elements that you've got, they've got to be right in the first place. Otherwise, you know, and that that's kind of, otherwise you can, you listen to it and you're like, oh, yeah. They put a lot of EQ on that something or other. You know, that's what yeah. it sounds like. It sounds like somebody boosted some frequency or ridiculous amount to try and get it bright enough or something yeah i absolutely love that i think that you nailed it there and that's probably a perfect spot to wrap up because yeah i do feel like so many people do just get into this and and you know whether it's mixing or mastering or whatever like 
I find a lot of people generally jump into mixing right away because it's kind of the fun thing. You're playing with this new technology, you're playing with software plugins, and you know it's it's easy to get wrapped up into that world and to want to focus on that and making things sound better in that world. But to your point, it's like everything is kind of it's this like linear process, and you have to have it right at the source to make it keep going up and get getting better and better in quality. And it all starts with something really yeah. good at the source. Well, and the other thing is is that um, we have to sort of rem- like it's it's. Um it's it's like a collective effort you know it's you know i suppose that um uh well we, we're sort of ego driven individuals and and you know it's like we always think that we're our thing is really important you know like what we're doing is <laughs> and it's in reality uh it's kind of a group effort and it's a good thing to have some humility about what you're doing honestly it's like you're only as good as the stuff you've been given. It's not like, you know, people, you know, people say, oh, that was a great master you did. And that. well, actually, it was a great mix. Mm-hmm. Actually, the person's really talented. The singer's really good. You know, the whole, yeah. you can't go wrong with it. It's like, you know, it, it's it's a lot of the stuff's like that. You have to, you have to, um, and, I, and that's not a very popular view among some of my colleagues, actually, because they tend to think that they're doing everything. But really, it's it's honestly it's um, <clears throat> it's the artist, you know. It's uh, the artist and the vision of the artist. That's that's ninety odd percent of it, really. We're just kind of we're just kind of here to facilitate and and like make sure that they're not making some mistake or something like that. Of course, yeah. You know, just kind of get it across the finish line, and it's not that big of a deal, honestly. Yeah, it's it's just that everyone's working on the same team, trying to serve the same vision and just get it out there, sounding as good as it can. And, and yeah, that's all. I mean, my thing is basically, I, I have a certain aesthetic, and that's why people send stuff to me because it sounds a certain way. That's how I hear it, and that's my sound, and that's what you know. That's what people like that send me stuff. You know, they like that they like that thing it sounds a certain way if you send a song to 10 different mastering engineers it'll each one will sound different um so it's an aesthetic ultimately it's just a very kind of light touch but it's it's how you hear it mm-hmm. yeah well i mean you've worked on so many amazing sounding records so that uh, that aesthetic you've got definitely works, right? So if people are into that sound, you're the guy to go to for that kind of thing. So well, it's worked so far, so good. I yeah, mean, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it can go absolutely. out of style too. Absolutely. Well, John, John, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I think you gave us a lot of really insight, or really good insight uh, into the process, into the gear. Um, I think a lot of people are going to find this really helpful and, and learn a lot from it. So thank you for taking that time. If people want to learn more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, that's a good question. I'm, I've been in a year-long process of, of building a new website, which somehow seems to never get done. I don't know. It's hard to get people to do those things. My website's like super old, so probably not. that's not very useful. Um, just listen to stuff that I've done, basically. That's all. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. That's about it. It's like I've got a, a Spotify playlist and stuff. So that I but stuff that I've worked on recently. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have links to your website on the in the show notes so people can easily find it. And uh, speaking of listening to any cool any projects that you're working on, like, are there any 
current projects that you're working on right now that you can talk about? Well, you know, I've been having a really interest. I've been having a really good time working with um, English mixers. Are, I find are like they're kind of a bit less full of themselves and more in service of the music and 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 kind of more sort of thoughtful about stuff. So there's a couple of people. There's a project that I I really like. Um, uh, there's a guy named Muramasa. Do you know who that is? Uh, the name sounds sort of familiar, but very I talented do. producer. And we're working on some songs that he's doing, which I, which I really like a lot. I think he's super talented. You should look him up. M-U-R-A-M-A-S-A. Awesome. Muramasa. Muramasa. I don't know how you pronounce, but that stuff's really cool. Cool. We did a song called um, Together recently, which you can hear on Spotify. So that'll be fun. There's some more stuff coming from that project um other than that uh i don't know i always it's difficult for me to i can't remember i work on so many things it's like you know sometimes i work on like four five six different artists you know a day so it kind of sometimes i don't even remember it all just blends into i'll hear a song somewhere and i'll go that sounds really familiar and i'll be like oh yeah well, my daughter actually said, yeah, you worked on that. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so that, it's hard to remember. Um, yeah. Anyway. Cool. Awesome. Well, John, thank you one more time for, for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank it. you. Yeah, it's always fun to um, to have an opportunity to uh, maybe, you know, save somebody else some trouble somewhere, you know, that maybe help out a little bit. It's a good thing. So that was my conversation with John Greenham, and I thought that was a really cool chat. I thought it was really interesting to hear his philosophies on using analog versus digital equipment for mastering, and I also thought it was really cool to hear the stories about working with Billie Eilish and some of the things that they had in mind when it came to their tracks and how they got some of the sounds that they wanted, especially hearing him tell the story about the boombox and how that kind of inspired a sonic decision. I think that that's a really cool story and I think that it just goes to show you how everybody's system is different and everyone has a different creative vision. But you know, when you're working on projects together, you're a team and you always have to have that vision in mind and, and have this mutual goal. So I thought it was really cool to hear John tell that story. And I also thought it was really fascinating to hear his philosophies on the loudness wars and how none of it really matters at the end of the day and how he's just kind of going about making songs sound as good as they can and not getting lost in the technical weeds of volume levels and this and that, which I find so many people get trapped in. You know, so many people feel like they need to meet these certain standards that have been published by Spotify or whoever. But really, at the end of the day, some of these mastering engineers who are making amazing sounding records, who are winning Grammys, none of them care about this stuff. So I just thought it was really interesting to hear John's perspective on things. And maybe you'll implement this into your philosophy as well. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, that way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live every Wednesday morning. We've got so many great interviews coming up, and definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, we've got a ton of great resources designed to make the process of recording and mixing your music from home super easy. One resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put out a while ago that became an Amazon number one bestseller. And inside of this book, I really break down the process of mixing from beginning to end, going through everything you need to know as far as your workflow, which tools to use, what to be listening for, all of that so that you have a very straightforward process to follow and you can easily make your mixes from home. 
Now, if you would rather not go about it completely on your own and instead you would like to have some support and get feedback on a regular basis and have someone actually walk you through the process of recording and editing your music and giving you the feedback and personalized advice that you need along the way, then that is exactly what I offer inside of my one-on-one -on -one coaching programs. Through having access to me inside of a private chat where we can go back and forth on ideas, you can ask questions whenever you want. We also have a shared Dropbox folder where you can send me your session files and have me actually go inside your sessions and see what's going on under the hood and give you the advice that you need. And then on top of that, having weekly one-on-one -on -one calls with me where we can really troubleshoot all of the problems that you're going through and walk through the various stages of the pro production formula from beginning to end. That is exactly what we cover inside of my coaching program. Now, space is extremely limited inside of this coaching program. I only take on five coaching students at a time, but I would absolutely love to help you. If you're interested in learning more about this, all you need to do is just simply send an email to info at masteryourmix.com and all you need to include in the email is the word coaching. And then I'll ask you a couple questions about where you're at with your current productions, what you're struggling with, and if it seems like you're a good fit, then I would absolutely love to work with you to come up with an action plan to help you create pro sounding mixes. So once again, if you're interested in that, make sure to send an email to info at masteryourmix.com and all you need to include in that email is the word coaching. All right, that is it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed that, and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. Take care. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.